it's not just a one-off thing. It's not just a, a random footprint on a, and then nothing happens for 10 years. This is a build-up in one specific, very small patch of jungle where you're seeing repeated activity that has been analysed by credible scientists over a decade now. Ladies and gentlemen, Trying to solve the mystery of, of such a creature, such a remarkable creature that we'd learned so much about, is what prompted me to spend so much of my time and money in Tomorrow over the last few years. Man, it certainly ain't the food. On that note, what kind of stuff did we... Oh, I keep saying we, I don't... No, it's cool, yeah. <laughs> We've been talking for years, now you're part of the team. So come on in through the virtual door and join me. There you go. And as I canoed across the lake to our base camp, you can hear all the hooting of the gibbons as you arrive, you know. Oh boy. It's an amazing, amazing place. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6, and I'm very excited about this edition of the program because it sort of serendipitously has developed into an annual tradition of its own. Our guest is, of course, extreme explorer, world-class cryptozoologist Adam Davies, and he's coming back here for his fourth appearance Comes back every January. We like to call it his uh, audio base camp, where he updates us on his trips of the past year and his expeditions of the past year and his journeys uh, of the past year. Because he's doing some amazing stuff. Every year he's off searching for these creatures that are, some of them are right very, very close to getting picked up, folks. And uh, we're talking about the Orang Pendek. That was his big thing this year. He's kind of becoming synonymous with the Orang Pendek because of this research, because he's getting so close. This thing is just so close. It's so exciting. And, you know, I was excited when I first had you on the program four years ago, and I had a feeling, you know, this guy's doing what we need to be done to get to the bottom of these things. And you've continued to do it, and the results have been remarkably awesome every year. So I'm going to keep having you on the program. Hopefully someday, you know, some year we're going to have you on, and it'll be like, well, this was the year you did it, bro. We, you know, <laughs> crack open the champagne because, uh, you know, we got the Orang Pendek. I say we like I had anything to do with it, but. <laughs> no, I'd certainly welcome your support, Tim, but we can talk about it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Adam Davies back on the program, and it's always just like a trip down to the pub when we get together talking here. That's why it's mm. been loose already here. And, uh, you know, welcome back to the program, Formalities, you know, Extreme Expeditions is the book. Check it out from Anomalous Books, and uh, you can find out more about them on Facebook. Adam, welcome back. Thank you very much, Tim. It's a real pleasure. I love doing the show, and I love talking to you. It'd be good. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, I always have fun. I always have fun when I talk to you. Me too, man. Uh, now, when we last talked last year, you sort of, it always seems like it's fresh start around this time of year for you, and you're looking ahead to the year. And I, I don't recall if it was last year or the year before, but you were sort of like, you know, you're thinking you were going to, you know, take a breather from the Orang Pendek a little bit, look at some other stuff. I know you did the uh, Mokele Mamembe, which got some good press recently from the BBC. Um, mm. But then you ended up here in 2011 going back after uh, that damn dirty ape. 
your angle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. I mean, I'd done I'd done India um, the year before as well, the Mandi Barung, mm-hmm. which was which was a great trip, and it was the first time to go. But I did end up going back to Sumatra, and that was because. Um, I'd got a high concentration of sightings, again, in a particular area where I'd been before. And, and the, my contacts in Sumatra have been saying, look, we've got some real activity here. We've got some real, real, really good leads, really good eyewitnesses. And, you know, it's credible. So it's worth going out there. So I kind of thought, do I want to go to Sumatra again? There's other things I want to do. And I'm definitely doing a few, couple of other things in the next year or so, which I'll tell you about later. Um, but I thought, I've just got to go. And so... It was it was time to get together a team, and luckily, um, because I had a lot of contacts, I was able to put together a really great international team. Basically, we had um, it was it was it was a CFZ expedition of that year, and obviously I was leading it. But what because we had I had ten people who we, who who wanted to come, I divided it into two groups, and basically the methodology was well, let's go to Gunung Tuju, which is the volcano where there's been a lot of sightings and where I've got hair and prints, but also let's go to the lowland where myself and Andy Sanderson had previously heard the Orang Pendak calling out. So divided into two teams, I had a tracker on each team. I put Chris Clark in charge of the Lowlands team, Dr. Chris Clark, along with um, a tracker in John McGowan and CFZ Australia in Mike and, and, and Rebecca and Lisa Mallon was, uh, Mallon was there as well. And then I took myself, Andy Sanderson, and a tracker, Dave Archer, um, and a Dutch Dutch guy had been before who'd also got recent evidence, Tim Defrell, um, up and we were together with Richard Freeman up to the higher um, camp as well. So we had a two-pronged team. We had more camera traps than we'd ever had before. We had the best guides I could possibly get and we were obviously out there um, to, to find as much evidence as we could and we had a, we had a crew from the BBC with us too. Oh, nice, so nice. We, so we kind of divided it up um, uh, and, and did it that way. And I went up there with my my best guide, Sahar, and, and good friend as well. And the evidence we found was, was, was again, very, very compelling, Tim. Very nice, very nice. See, this sounds amazing. This is a, a really well thought out and well put together thing. And it's, a, it's remarkable to look at the evolution of these expeditions as they go on. Cause like, like the first year where you just kind of like just trekking around in the jungle, looking around, getting a feel for, for what it was all about. And now here in, in 2011, you've got this expansive two-pronged attack on, on the issue. So it's amazing. It's, it's remarkable to see. Yeah, how far I, I think, that, I think that's, that, that's exactly what it is. Because when I first went and I first trolled around, um, I, I sort of did scouts of the area, and then I concentrated on an area with specific sightings, and you sort of get closer and closer to pinpointing the evidence. And then, you know, from there, you learn exactly what routes it might go on. I was thinking about how it migrates. Was it solitary? Um, what are its feeding habits? And what's the best time of the year to go? So you're constantly refining each time you go your your research and your knowledge, so you sort of pinpointing it and I'm trying to when I'm out there actually think how it might behave what it might be looking for um, what um, what's the best way to track and what's the best way to get evidence for it so you know when if I start um, planning an expedition any expedition I do takes a minimum of six months to, to sort of gather together so that it's good because it's you know it's my own time and, and, and my own money and that of the people with us nobody funds us 
So we, we have to do things on a shoestring. But if we're doing things on a shoestring, I'm going to damn well make sure that we do the, we, we have the best shoestring we've got we can possibly go for. So <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it really is really concentrated planning, and that's what pays off. Um, you know, I'm all for people doing expeditions, but do the research first, man. It's so important. Yeah, yeah, just don't hop on a plane to Mongolia going after that death. No, no. <laughs> Please, well, if, you, if that's your crack, go for a holiday, but you're not going to get anything out of it unless you do it first. <laughs> now, this is, was this, is this your fourth time you've been to Sumatra? Or was sixth it more? time. Sixth, sixth time? time wow, time. sixth time. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you hear the call, like, you, you know, I, 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 can, I can feel you, you know, you get the, you get the reports and you're like, it's, I got to go back, man. Because it's tantalizing. Exactly this is so tantalizing. Every time I hear about you going back down there, it's like, oh, he's so close, this guy. Based on just how extensive this one was, does it seem like the, the perspective sort of changing? Is there an air of excitement around this thing? Because I'm feeling it, uh, you know, an air of excitement around the Orang Pendek down in Sumatra and also from, from where you are in the U.K., you know, and how it's coming together up there and stuff and you're putting it together. It's like, is there, is there sort of this air of excitement around it? Because I'm feeling it. Yeah, I think, I think there's... The, the, Momentum the, even might be the word, too. Yeah, I think momentum's a good thing. I mean, what I did, momentum is exactly what I wanted to build when I wrote the um, Edge Science magazine article, the new primate species in Sumatra article. <laughs> um, because from that, I specifically put together um, evidence that had been analysed by credible scientists who were leaders in their field, who had all come to the same conclusion, unknown primate, yeah? Mm -hmm. So, for example, I, I talked about the prints that I'd found on previous expeditions that had been analyzed by the primatologist Chivers, who'd said unknown primate. I talked about Jeff Meldrum analyzing them. I talked about the hairs that had been analyzed by people like Hans Brunner and um, Lars Thomas as unknown primate. So, I basically, I said, well, look, it's not just a one-off thing. It's not just a, a random footprint on a, and then nothing happens for 10 years. This is a build-up in one specific, very small patch of jungle where you're seeing repeated activity that has been analyzed by credible scientists over a decade now. So when that, when that evidence is, is gathered, it becomes very difficult to, to refute because what you're basically saying is, well, all these scientists who've analyzed this stuff over a number of years, they must all be wrong for it, for it, or they must all be inconsistent for it to, for it to not be the case. And what I've, what I've demonstrated, I feel, is, is, is this consistent scientific opinion that has pointed to the existence of an unknown primate in Sumatra. And that's what I've been seeking to do. Because evidence, eyewitnesses uh, accounts are great and they make an interesting tale, but in the world of science they count for nothing. What you want is independent scientific evidence that can be corroborated and analysed by peers. And that's what I've been seeking to build for the existence of the Orang Pendak. Exactly, yeah. It's, it was a tremendous article and the, the evidence is stacking up more and more. For some odd reason, like the radio guy part of me, feels like I should ask you, just sort of give us the thumbnail on what the Orang Pendek is for people who are tuning in. This is the first time they've heard uh, you on the show. They should go back and check out the previous three episodes. But, you know, let's give them a thumbnail so they're not just listening like, oh, he never even said what it was. I don't understand. So let's, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's take care of those. Yeah, books. yeah, no, cool. Yeah, totally. Well, basically, the stories about the Orang Pendek go back centuries, yeah, and that's what interested me in the first place because it's not a case of some, like, plastic yeti that's kind of, that, that sort of knocked about from the 1960s right. and it's not um, a yeti it's called the short man of the jungle orang pendak 
And, and the first stories, um, which, which were translatable, go back to Marco Polo's time when they talked about in Sumatra these weird bipedal, short, hairy men. So, in other words, walking on two legs who lived who lived in in that particular in, in a particular part of Sumatra. And you know, from the times when the Dutch um, were, were, were active in the area when they um, colonised, or for want of a better word, governed, I think is probably a better word, um, Sumatra, um, to, 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 uh, to right up to the present day with, with eyewitnesses like Debbie Martyr, there's a consistency of sightings of something that has the face of a human or appears to have the face of a human, but the body of an ape. But the, the most interesting thing is that it walks like a man. So it's a bipedal primate, quite short, lives in the jungle. It's enormously strong, extremely shy. Um, it isn't sophisticated in the sense that its tool use would be commensurate, say, with that of a chimpanzee. So it doesn't have fire, um, but it's an incredible, it's an incredible story. I mean, it, and, it, and it definitely exists. It, there's no fancy about it. So trying to solve the mystery of, of such a creature, such a remarkable creature that we'd learned so much about um, from a scientific point of view. Um, is what prompted me to spend so much of my time and money in Sumatra over the last few years. Man, it certainly ain't the food, you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. This is like the white whale. This is this is the one that... Uh, yeah, it's the white whale. It, it, is definitely a, it is definitely a Moby Dick thing for me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I would not be eating that. I mean, with the best one in the world, I, I love the people and everything else, but, man, I, I'm not a big fan of the food. And um, <laughs> <laughs> There are only so many curried fish heads, one man can stomach. <laughs> <laughs> now, to, I, I was kind of dancing around trying to get the right words, uh, but, but how do they feel about this whole thing down in Sumatra? Are, they, are, their, are their perspectives changing on it as, as you keep coming down there? Like, do they recognize you now? Are you sort of like, you know, like the Brad Pitt of uh, Sumatra when you come into town? Are they excited? <laughs> I, I wish it was the Brad Pitt. I might be able to pull a, an Angelina Joni lookalike, but maybe that's stretching it. Maybe there's more chance of me finding the Orang Pendak doing a cabaret in Manchester than there is of me doing that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. They, they, well, you know, I think with the, with the local people, I think when I first went, I've noticed a difference. Um, and I think that's because of, of, in some ways, westernization. When I first went, people were a bit like, well, <clears throat> what does he want to go into the jungle for? I'm not really sure about the place. Um, to now with the advent of technology, people are far more aware of it. Um, you know, <clears throat> and Sahar's, when we were going to the mountain, for example, this time, Sahar's son, Rafles, was with us. And I can speak a very little bit of Indonesian. And he was on, uh, you know, as we were going up the mountain towards the jungle, he was, he was like talking to his girlfriend saying, no, I love you. No, you put down the phone first. No, you, no, you. And then I said in Indonesian, come on, Rafles, get on with it. And he looked really embarrassed, you know. <laughs> so, 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 there's, <laughs> so there's been, there's been like this, um, there's, there's a technological awareness as well. And I think for the local people, what I've tried to impart on them is that it's important um, for, for their own self as well, that, that if they preserve that jungle, then they're preserving not only a unique environment um, where other endangered species live, not least the Sumatran tiger, but that, you know, it's their legacy, it's their heritage, so it's worth preserving. It's, it's a remarkable place. And all the, you know, you don't want a palm oil plantation there. You want that jungle. It's just beautiful, Tim. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, this is also, you know, like we've talked about on the show before, this is like all about, this is a race against the uh, development, I guess you could say. You know, a race to try and make sure we, we can prove this thing is real before 
these jungles get taken over because they, <laughs> you know, we got to preserve the animal because they seem extremely rare. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're talking about building a new road through there at the moment. So um, it's all about, I mean, you, if you if you went to the place where I normally go, a lot of the time, um, it just, it, it, I'm not being dramatic when I say it looks like a scene out of Jurassic Park, you know. Mm-hmm. The first thing I saw when I when I got to the jungle this time was a, was a giant cobra just as I entered the lip of the volcano. You can see um, I saw a fish eagle sweep across the lake. And as I, as I canoed across the lake to our base camp, you can hear all the hooting of the gibbons as you arrive, you know. Oh, boy. Just outside the camp, there's a massive tiger print. It's an amazing, amazing place. And it's an, you know, it's an international treasure. And whatever, whether you're skeptical or otherwise of, of the researchers as we talk and as I present it to you, um, nobody um, who has an ounce of soul within their body could deny that this is a place worth preserving. And the motives behind preserving the, the, the Orang Pendek are purely altruistic. There is nothing in it for me other than preserving the environment and the creature. Exactly. You're not going to open a theme park there or anything, right? No, God, no, no. And I don't make any money off it. I'm not interested in things like that. I'm not interested in materialism. It, it never appeals to me. So, okay, so we're so we're let's get dive back into the CFZ Sumatra Expedition 2011. I love I love the title of it. Um, <laughs> now, did this was this? You, you kind of talked about how you got these reports and everything. So, was this sort of like your brainchild here to get it going, or were the, were the guys from the CFZ sort of uh, all the same mindset and you all came together? How did it sort of uh, what was the germination? Well, I, I, I lead the expedition for them, yeah. So, so in, in, and, and you know, a lot of the people there are already friends of mine, so mm-hmm. we talk regularly, and that's kind of how it evolved. It's, it, uh, and and I did um, obviously I contacted my guides in Sumatra, and together with Andy Sanderson and Chris, um, we did a lot of the a lot of the the, the initial planning for it. Contacted. Um, uh, Dali and Sahar to organize, you know, the basics, Tim, yeah. the, the food supplies, the transport. It's all about maximizing the time when you're there. You don't want any time hanging around. I want to just be there, get into the jungle, go, and then and then off you go somewhere else. So, yeah. it, so a lot of the logistics were there. And then when um, we all met up, because some of the people, you know, I, I didn't know um, that well, like the guys from Australia and Tim, um, we went, I went through the plan and we discussed how that would, would formulate. So there was a lot of background work, but it was more about, once, once we'd done that, it was more about getting on with it, simple as that, off you go. There you go, yeah. Uh, maximize your time and get on with it. As you know, I like to take the audience sort of into this trip as best I can. So you're, you get in there to the jungle, then you, how long do you guys like split up into teams? And then how long were you guys separated? And was there communication between the two teams? Yeah, um, those are good questions. Let me break it down by saying we we we, we travelled down. We stood, we spent a night in a homestay where I went through the plans, mm-hmm. and then the two teams completely split up. Um, it was always a worry in the sense that because I'm responsible for the people's lives, it was the first time where I'd had two groups, right? And I wasn't in contact with the other group, so oh. that played on my mind. But they were in the lowland area, so. Um, potentially there was less risk in the sense that if um, they did have an injury like an ankle break or something like that, they could get out, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, with the people who went on the top, they were, they'd all been to Sumatra before. So so there was less, you know, but, but again, it's an enormous risk. If someone hurts themselves up there, then, you know, it can be very, very serious. 
Um, so I wasn't in contact with them at all. We managed to get one phone signal out to them to organise a pickup for the BBC crew who came after we'd been there about um, five or six days, say, yeah. Okay. Um, so we managed to get them in um, and them out, but pretty much I didn't speak to the, to the other group until we came out of the jungle at the end of the expedition. And how long was that? I think it was a couple of weeks. Okay. So, wow. Uh, so, so roughly speaking, it was a couple of weeks. So probably I didn't speak to them for about 13 days or so, roughly. Yikes. So they could have, like, captured it. You wouldn't even know. I guess they could have. No, but... I didn't know. I mean, I mean, I can tell you what they found later, but yeah. I wouldn't know, no, and that was it. But, you know, that was all about maximizing your, that was about maximizing your potential. Yeah, I mean, if you, want, if you could, you'd want, like, five teams in there. The same yeah, God, yeah, you'd want, to, you'd want to saturate the area. I mean, there's only so many people you can send up to the lake because of logistics, simply because you need canoes and you need, there's only so many on there and to get to the base camp where I needed to go that you, could, you, you, you are restricted in what you can do. Mm-hmm. But there's no reason, for example, where you couldn't have another observational team, say, in farmers' barns where there have been sightings as well, or doing stakeouts of the, of the farmland on the edge of the jungle. Yeah, you could, but uh, I had 10 people from um, three or four different nationalities, plus all the local Sumatran guides there. So I'm then managing at uh, a maximum time, certainly when we were taking the people up to the lake, up to about 30 people. And also when you're sending people off, you know, it's not like, it's not like when you're sending people off on holiday saying, see, you have a nice day. If I'm sending people, say, to canoe on the other side of the, to, to the other side of the lake to go into a bit of, of, of untraversed jungle or hardly traversed jungle, then it's a potential risk for them. So I have to weigh all these things up. Um, uh, on the lake, for example, the weather can change. It can be, it can be quite dangerous. So there's a lot of permutations. There's only so much you can effectively do. So sure, in the lowlands, you could have more people because I don't think that's particularly risky. But certainly up at the lake, you have to be careful how many people you manage. Things start to change there. It starts to get more extreme. Right, right. Well, nonetheless, this sounds like a massive international effort alone. Yeah, seeing, well, uh, yeah. And you've got what, four different nationalities, yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, definitely. Okay, so you're, so you're, the two teams have split up. Uh, I know last time you were there, you, ha- you guys had a pretty dramatic sighting, and I remember you saying Sahar uh, saw the creature. Uh, do we have any actual eyewitness sightings this time around? No, no eyewitness sightings, but we've probably got something that potentially could be more important. We okay. went to the area where Sahar had the sighting la- um, last time, and we, obviously we set up camera traps, but nobody saw it this time. There was a potential hearing of it. Um, uh, uh, a day or so after we got there, but that isn't substantial enough for me to talk about it in only length. Right, right. There's, and there's even no sightings. And I was just going to say, and even as as exciting and sort of uh, titillating a sighting is, you know, it's not necessarily something that really we can bring back from Sumatra. You know what I mean? It's sort of like a fantastic no. memory for the person, but it's not good enough for like anybody who who wasn't there. You know, it's like watching someone hearing about someone's vacation story. You know what I mean? It's like we need a little something a little more tangible, as awesome as, as it would be to see it. Yeah, I think that's right, and and I think Andy reminded me of that. Um, Andy Sanderson, when we were there, because he hadn't been for a few years, and and you know he's conscious of my of my desire to. I mean, I make no bones about the fact that I know the Yuang Pendek exists. So I'm out to prove it. So right. that's why <clears throat> that's why it's very important that the objective of scientists who analyze the stuff are objective. Yeah. So because everybody knows where I'm coming from, and. I'd love to see it on a personal point of view, but would it add anything to the party scientifically? Well, no, of course, absolutely it wouldn't. You're better getting tangibles. And I, and I was, 
I was firmly of the opinion that, you know, given the choice between another sighting or gathering some tangible DNA, I'd take the, the DNA any time. Much as I want to see it, I'd sacrifice my own personal sighting for DNA any time. Right, right, because the better the case is for the more funding we can get to go after it and, you know, the more interest gets generated, you know, like the momentum, that's it's the right. momentum story again. That's it. That's right, exactly, and that's that's what you're after. And so on that note, what kind of stuff did we fu- – oh, I keep saying we. I don't want <laughs> No, it's cool. You, 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 we've been talking for years now. You're part of the team, Tim. So, so come on in through the virtual door and join me. There you go. It's, it's completely subliminal, folks. I don't know why I keep doing it, but I've noticed it. Uh, <laughs> so what kind of tangible stuff did you guys bring back this time around from the trip? Well, the second team – I'll start with the second team. Okay. Cool. They found prints, which um, which – some of the guides said were orang pandem, orang pandak prints, which was marvellous, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the, the, Mike and, and, and Rebecca Lang, Mike Williams and Rebecca Lang have taken them back um, to Australia, um, and, and that's, that's fantastic. Um, our team um, up at the lake, we, the last time I was there in 2000, we, we, first of all, we traversed the area where there'd been sightings before and where I had found, um, together with Andy, um, a print in 2001. Um, and we didn't get any joy there. We, obviously, we set up camera traps and left them, etc. But once we traversed the trails, then we um, went to the other side of the lake. Um, and and it's, it's quite strange, actually, the way it works, because one side of the lake, in terms of um, in terms of the, the vegetation and the animal activity, is very different to the other side. Hmm. And on, on the other side, it's, it, it's even remoter, if you like. So very few people bother to go there. And we, what I basically do when we're out is we. Although we move very, very slowly through the jungle, we don't make a sound because we're hoping to hear it. But we're also obviously scanning for any prints, um, or any, anything that we can possibly find. And we scan the game trails as, as, as they go along. Um, and also we're looking for places to see camera traps. And we'd found little evidence or some slight evidence on the other side of the lake. For example, we'd seen stem ginger uh, plants snapped and, and the orang pendek's reputed to eat ginger. Mm-hmm. But we found very little, and um, we were just in. It was, and I was also conscious at the time because we have to get onto the other side of the lake. And it was sort of, I was sort of about to say to Sahar and John, well, let's turn back. And I said to them, well, okay, before we turn back, let's just have one last scan of, of, of the trails up here, and then we'll we'll, we'll turn back. And they um, just went slightly ahead. We were in a group, and. John comes back and says, look, we think we've got something. So we went over to, to where they'd been. They'd only gone for a minute. We went over to where they, where they were, and there looked like very, very clearly what looked to be a print, extremely clear. You can see it both on, on, on my site, on, on Facebook, and on the Extreme Expeditions, uh, Adam Davis on Facebook, and the Extreme Expeditions site on Facebook. You can see the print very, very clearly. It looked extremely like handprint. We were really excited. Um, and we, we made a, a mark of it and then moved on because you don't just stop at the one print. Yeah. Right. So we carried on looking for more trails. And then <clears throat> on a tree, John, who's Sahar's brother, found what, found some extremely strange looking hairs. Now I'm very familiar with, um, with hairs of creatures in the jungle. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but for example, tiger hairs are very white and tapir hairs tend to be gray, but these look extremely unusual and it was in the vicinity of the print, which was extremely exciting. So what, um, we, what we, I mean, we had a good scan and we didn't find anything else, but we found those two things. So Andy Sanderson made a cast of the print, um, and it looked like the orang pendek has been 
turning over logs to look for insects. Now, you remember um, w w when I found the print last time in 2001, I said that one of the things that the orang pandek seems to do is move through the jungle, like treating it almost like a supermarket. So it snacks as it moves through the jungle, yeah? Right, right, um, right. And it turned over a log um, relative, with relative ease, and Andy and I had struggled to pick this log up, you know, two big blokes. So it shows its apparent strength. And um, so, so we made a cast of that, and it's a great cast. It's come out beautifully. Love it. Um, the hairs, um, we, I, I, I removed, um, I put a face mask on I rem and gloves. I removed the hairs from the uh, tree with tweezers. They were immediately put in ethanol because it's too damp to carry, carry the stuff through and anything else. So they were preserved in ethanol. And then they were then, <clears throat> when I got back, split into three different um, sections with a control section kept for me. So four sections. Okay. The, the hairs went to three of the leading scientists in the world to be analyzed, um, who the leading geneticist in their field to be analyzed. Um, forgive the name, uh, Professor Willislav in, in Denmark is doing some DNA testing. Todd Dissatel from America is doing it. And Professor Brian Sykes from the University of Oxford is not only testing those, but um, testing the hairs from 2009. I kept a control sample of that as well, and he's testing both. Now, Professor Sykes, I went down to Oxford to see him in, in, um, just before Christmas. He is... There couldn't be anyone more. All of these guys are, are, are top-notch scientists. Yeah. But he couldn't. There couldn't be anyone more eminent than him. He's a lovely man. Um, he wrote the Seven Daughters of Eve, uh, which is an international bestseller, which basically says um, that we're all descended from seven particular individual clans in in, in European in in Europe. So, you know, the fact. The, the, I mean, I'm honoured that, that these guys are all volunteering to do it. But the fact now is that I've got people of this pedigree prepared to test the evidence, which is A, costing them a lot of their time and their money, and it's costing them a lot, but B, you know, I mean, Brian, I've been in regular touch with him, he's, he's been getting hair samples, he said, oh, I've just been to go and get a Sumatran tiger um, hair a sample, for example, he said that um, to me a week ago. Um, shows just how much we've moved the bar in terms of this research because I can tell you that 10 years ago if I tried to get this people wouldn't have been very, would have been very very reticent indeed not these individuals I can't speak for how they would have behaved right the community but, as a whole so the, yeah the community as a whole would have been um, um, you know reluctant I remember Hans Brunner telling me how some of the, the scientists he'd worked with had told him really to be very wary of this particular field so now these guys volunteering, I think it just shows how serious, um, seriously, certainly in the nature of the orang pandek, people are taking it. Yeah, I mean Brian obviously read my paper on on the on the new primate species as well, and you know I don't know what conclusion these guys will come to. Um, they may not be orang pandek has Tim. Um, they may be something else, but um, I know now with 100% confidence that if they are something special and unique, then they will say so, and they will have no qualms about saying it to whoever listens. Okay, so now that's you, fantastic. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. That's that's you know, this is fantastic that it's getting in. You know, it's moving up the chain of uh, mm, definitely of, of uh, academia. Now, I get two questions, I guess, with regards to that. Is there a timetable on when we'll find out information on the DNA? 
And then it sounds like, I guess extrapolate a little more, because I was going to ask, but you sort of, uh, you suggested that's the case, that someone, this guy, Dr. Sykes in Oxford, he's trying to take a look at both DNAs to see if they match so we can get, you know, for, that'll be really good too, obviously. So that's, I presume that's what he's trying to do, right? Yeah, I, 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 I haven't put a time limit on it, and I wouldn't want to suggest one. I think, you know, I, I am what I am in the sense that I'm a field researcher. I, I gather evidence, but it's very important to me that the evidence is analysed objectively and scientifically. And once I've given that those that that those samples to the scientists, then it's my job to step back, I think, and not get involved. Um, I think I leave it to them to give me a timetable and tell me, you know, when they're ready to, to, to release things or to say, well, I'm sorry, Adam, it's, it's not what you hope for. Um, either way, it's for them to tell me and then it's for me to talk about it with the team and then us to plan when we tell the rest of the world. I think I have a responsibility to, to the scientists, to the team, and then um, to, to, to people um, who are interested. Um, if we do get mitochondrial DNA off that, I think there'll probably be a lot of people who are interested. But that's not to hint, because I just don't know um, yeah. anything anything more than, than I've imparted on you. And yes, in answer to the second part of your question, I, I'm sure he'll do some comparisons. One thing that I did think, you know, just as we were talking then, I, I thought was interesting that it encouraged me slightly, you know, I think it's important I say, as I said, you know, it, the hairs don't, don't necessarily come from the orangutan deck, but it was, the handprint was in the vicinity, and it's an area where it clearly traverses to look for food. Mm-hmm. But when I took the hairs um, out of the ethanol to separate them into the three um, respective vials that went off to different parts of the world, as I've already described, um, they certainly seemed to have a sort of blondishy tint to them. Now, um, that encouraged me because one of the, an eyewitness who I'd spoken to um, at the foot of the village um, uh, of Sahar's village said that he'd seen a, an orang pendek active in the area um, only a few months before and he described its, its, its hair as being of a blondy colour so you never know you know it's a role but, but Brian will also be testing the 2009 sample as well yeah and he'll go through it very very fully, fully Professor Sykes I have no doubt about it nice 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 so this is you know it's sort of like, I can't find the proper analogy, but it's sort of like, you know, you, you get the pieces of the spacecraft, but it's, you know, the responsibility of the astronauts to drive the, the shuttle or whatever. That's a terrible analogy, but it's the best I could come up with. No, no, I think it's right. I think, you know, <laughs> it, is about, it is about gathering evidence because, you know, one of the things um, Professor Sykes said in his book was extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And when um, Andy and I... Um, first published some results in 2001 about the possible existence of the Orang Pendak. Um, uh, off the record, a scientist who is quite eminent but will remain nameless for this said, well, you know, Adam, if it was a new species of frog, you'd have no problem. It would be in nature right now. But because of what you're trying to prove, you have to come up with something really significant. And no photograph in the world will do it. You know, the, 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 the most conclusive proof I can get, because I'm not going to shoot one ever, um, would be mitochondrial DNA. Now, if that comes up, then that's kind of sort of my job done. <laughs> that, yeah. I think that's the high watermark. I'm fully aware of my own limitations as somebody who funds himself um, and with the goodwill of, of, of those people who are kind enough to come with me on these expeditions. So um, that's what I'm looking for, and that, I think that's I think that will tip the bar enough for people to finally say, well, you know, 
the orangutan act has got to exist. Right, right. The unfortunate part is just I'm, I'm looking at this story here about. Have you seen the thing about the snub-nosed monkey they found? Yeah, Jeremy Holden. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they just put out. Uh, I guess they finally have a picture of it now. Hmm. It just uh, was released today, which is exciting. But it's sort of a yeah. Sort I think Jeremy took it. I mean, Jeremy's been involved in the orangutan act research. He's a great. He's a great photographer, and he's and he, and, he, and he think he's one of the most underrated cryptozoologists in the world today. So uh, it's it's remarkable. Yeah, I knew I knew it was coming out, but he asked me to keep it under wraps. He told me a few months ago. So yeah. I did know, but obviously for me to respect confidences. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I did know about it, but. Um, but it, it, it is a, it is an amazing an amazing photograph, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And I guess the, the whole thing with the snub nosed monkey kind of mirrors the orang pendek in a way. Although they had the, the whole thing with the body, they found a body of this thing. It comes back to that in a lot of ways. It's like, it, it, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, the idea of I mean, people. I think you know. You'd, ideally, you'd want to find a body. Let's let's not pretend otherwise. Yeah, you'd right. want to find one lying down in the jungle that you could just get across. But I think the idea of, of finding something is very – these are very, very rare creatures really living in quite remote areas, although some of them are coming into um, human habitat. There's always a chance that some farmer come, could come across one and, and in some altercation machete it or something. Right. That's a possibility. It, as, as morose as it sounds, that's kind of the ideal – that's kind of what we want in a way is just like, you know, an accidental self-defense sort of thing where a hunter in, in Sumatra gets – we don't want Adam involved in any way with that. <laughs> With that, but some sort of but, you serendipitous know, thing. You know, Tim, I, I, I really don't. I mean, you don't uh, want that at all. No, despite the fact, in the purest way, I don't want that to happen. I'm hoping with with, with the establishment of DNA um, uh, and and the other proof that we've got, that should be enough to tip the bar, yeah. Um, and then scientific interest take over. I'd rather that than than something die, <laughs> okay. a horrible death. All right, um, that's fair. If it falls down and dies in front of us, then that's fine. I know that that I know that in in the purest sense, you'd want a body, and and and. But I think if if it's going to happen like that, that's the most likely scenario. Yeah. Yeah, some accidental thing. Yeah, some accidental death. It gets hit by a car or something as it comes out of the village. Exactly. Exactly. All right, so we're waiting on the DNA evidence. Uh, mm. Any sort of other insights into the trip? What was it like on a personal level to be back in the jungle after all these years? And, uh, you know, is this feeling well, like, do you feel at home almost there, or was it getting? Well, you know, yeah, I, mean, be... I wouldn't say all these years, really, because, I mean, I was in the jungle in India only six months before, mm. and I mm. think I was, only, I was in Sumatra a year or so before. It feels very, <laughs> it feels very familiar, Tim, after <laughs> yeah, yeah. After six times. I pretty much know it. I know all the routes there, so um, it's almost. I've spent more time in Sumatra, I think, than any other country in the world other than where I live. So, <laughs> so I mean, on a, on a bonus point, you always lose weight, so I look pretty damn hot when I get back. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good time to go on the pool straight after you come back from Sumatra. No, 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 no I'm not serious. <laughs> but, 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 it's, um, but yeah, you, you do lose a lot of weight. Um, it's hard slog. It can be quite dangerous. Um, you know, there are things to, to worry about, but it also can be magnificent. You know, if you're sat at night towards the end of the expedition when you've done all the hard work and you get a little fire going and you're having a few drinks and the stars are up because you're at elevation, it, it's, it's a remarkable place to be. So, um, it's very beautiful and I do, I do like it. Um, and you never know, um, 
<laughs> watch this space because I may go back sooner than sooner than I can say right now. Uh oh, uh oh, that's exciting. <laughs> now, any any you know perilous moments on the trip where you're a little concerned, or did it go pretty smoothly in that regard? Um, I think you know I talked about the advent of technology and, and how things are changing, and and I think the only really the only moment where I thought was was a bit hairy on the on the trip was on the last day when we were trying to get people down from the jungle quickly before it got night it got to night and a storm started and i sent um um the, the crew went down first of all they had some um flights to catch on with uh, then i sent tim and Richard down because Tim had got an injury and Richard wasn't feeling too clever either. And, and myself and Andy and Dave were waiting for the last, uh, for, for the guys to come back. And because it got very, very late, we ended up having to canoe, um, 5k across the lake uh, in rapid time. And oh, I remember boy. getting cramps in my hands as we got down. Um, uh, and then we had to climb a traverse a hill at the top. And then as we got down, it was chucking it down. It was getting very dangerous. It was, it was getting dark. We'd not been, obviously, in seeing any sort of commercial things for a while. So, you know, we shied away from a, from a car headlight when we finally got to the village. We got to the house, and there's a kids' TV program on, on the telly that I recognize. And I was <laughs> like, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> Such a transition from the middle of the jungle to that. But that's modern technology for you. So, but I wouldn't say... I felt any particular life risks. I'm always conscious of, of of worrying about it, and I was very relieved to see the other team were in one piece. But not when I was there. Obviously, um, there, there was um, Sahar um, passed away shortly after we got back, but not because of the expedition, just because he had an illness. Hmm. Well, that's probably a good. What, is there anything else we should talk about with the trip? No, I think that's it. I think you know, right now, wait and see. And um, I, I've given you a taste of that. I may go back sooner than you think. Right, right. Did you pick up any new sort of insights as to something you might try next time? Uh, I, I think, you know, next time um, I would – I'd like to spend some more time in the lowlands areas because I think they're picking up more and more results there. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, as human encroachment has come along, what the Orang Pandek has done is by being intelligent is adapting more and more to the environment that surrounds it. So it's getting bolder in the sense that it's spending more time in, for example, farmers' barns looking for sugar cane. It's getting less shy of people. Oh, boy. So that might be a good way forward. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a that's – a... Is that something that had come up before in the past, or is this sort of a relatively new development with the uh, legacy of the creature, if you will? I think there's always been sightings, but in my experience, uh, having gathering sightings, it's becoming more frequent. Um, uh, so I think it's, it, you know, and you can draw a very a very slender parallel, say, in the United Kingdom with the adaptation of, of foxes. And then, then you saw the urban foxes, they came more and more into 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 the area because they they were resourceful creatures. The Rampendek is obviously on a different scale and, and it's and it's it's a rough parallel, but I just want people to see how I, how I think it might behave. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, that could be, you know, it's an unfortunate development in a sense because it sounds like it's kind of threatened, but then in a lot of ways it's a good development that we might get better documentation of this even if it's picked up by someone taking a picture of it you know rifling yeah absolutely i think i think you know the most likely scenario right now is a local farmer takes a picture of it in his barn on his on his camera phone yeah interesting interesting okay so then uh you're back from 
from Sumatra, and unfortunately, this terrible news that Sahar passed away. I was stunned uh, reading this as I was looking at some year and review stuff, and I was thinking about talking to you uh, in January and how much fun we have on the conversations and remembering the story about Sahar and his sighting of the Orang Pendek. Then I saw the news, just heartbreaking stuff. Talk a little bit about the passing of Sahar. Yeah, well, obviously, Sahar um, has been my guide on, on, on five five of my six expeditions to Sumatra and you know I considered him a really good friend we were always in touch even when I wasn't there you know and there was a period where I didn't go for a couple of years and and I've seen his kids grow up I've seen I talked about Raffles for example um, who's now 16 I remember when he was you know a, a very tiny little boy <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I know his wife Lucy um, <clears throat> and we're, we've been friends for years and and um it came as a massive shock. I mean, he, he said he had back pain, obviously, when we were, um, just before we went out there. And he'd had a couple of, <clears throat> uh, painkillers, but nothing, um, would have given you any clue to how seriously ill he was. Um, obviously he wasn't aware of that himself. And then, um, Dali, um, who, who's another good friend of mine in Sumatra, sent me an email one day out of the blue. And I also got one off Luke Macon, who's out in Sumatra as well. And it basically, Dally's email, I'd logged in um, before I go to work because I get a lot of emails from America and obviously the time difference. Mm-hmm. I normally just have a quick look at my emails before I go to work early in the morning. And Dally, one just flashed up from um, Sumatra saying, you know, Sahar is, Sahar is dead. And I was like, you are joking. What are you talking about? And he said, no, Sahar really is dead. And he passed away. And, you know, we just feel absolutely terrible about it. And the CF said launched an appeal. You can see it on the website to give money um, to... to um, to Sahar's family because he leaves behind three children um, and obviously a wife and um, I just felt absolutely gutted um, you know to use an English expression um, he's a great loss I mean in my opinion um, having been all over the world you know I've been to the Himalayas China Mongolia Russia you name it I've been yeah. he was pound for pound the best most instinctive tracker I ever met um, he's on a par with the pygmies in the Congo in terms of instinctual nature um, uh, and tracking ability. There was nobody like him. He was unique um, and a remarkable man. Um, but I don't, and, and although I feel very, very upset when I talk about Sahar, I thought about what I was going to say, and I want to leave. Um, Sahar had a great sense of humor, and I want to leave the Sahar topic with a really a funny story, which is how I want to remember Sahar as a great man and with a great sense of humor. And the, when we first got to the jungle, Dave won't mind me saying this, but when we first got to the jungle, um, we, we obviously we, all, we had sleeping arrangements and, and the locals sleep. I used to sleep in this, but um, now we don't, but the locals sleep in a pond dock and they all slept together. And, and there were a couple of tents where, three tents where the, where Tim, um, Andy and I and Richard, and and Dave slept. Now Dave um, snores like a water buffalo. He won't mind me <laughs> saying it, but it's not like it's just it's not a or a it's a. Oh boy! It's so loud, yeah. It's so loud. Like it feels like the jungle's resonating, yeah, <laughs> absolutely resonating. So we're lying down in the tents, and you can hear this like this, like, and it's like day one, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we bear in mind we've climbed up this 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 uh, uh, volcano, so we're a bit knackered anyway. And I could hear the Sumatrans chattering away. Now. 
you know, a couple of centuries ago, and then we've talked about, I talked about this with Sahar, so clearly we're joking, there, there used to be cannibalism in Sumatra, yeah. and um, people used to be called the long pig, because presumably they tasted like a pig, yeah? Yeah. Um, um, so, so I saw, I, I, when I went over to Sahara in the morning, because we always did a, a, him and I always planned the day's activities, first thing in the morning we talked about the tracking, I, <laughs> obviously they'd heard Dave snoring, and, and I said to Sahar, um, shall, shall we eat the long pig, Mr. Dave? Yeah? <laughs> and he just laughed, yeah, he laughed. Anyway, day two, you hear this. <laughs> None of us are sleeping, right? And it was really bad. And you could hear the Sumatra's chattering. Day three, right? Same thing. <laughs> Sahar comes over to me knackered, yeah, and all Sumatra's looking knackered. And he goes, he goes, Adam. And I said, yes, Sahar. He says, do you really think we should eat the long pig, Mr. Dave? <laughs> <laughs> and I say, no, Sahar, the BBC are going to come in three or four days' time. We can't say, where's Dave? Oh, I'm sorry, we had to eat him because he was snoring, you know. <laughs> so, so that's how I want to remember Sahar. And of course he was joking, but that's the sort of guy he was. No matter how hard it was, no matter how tough it was, in any situation, no matter how knackered he was, he had a smile on his face and he carried on doing the best job he could and he was a great friend. So that's, that's, how, that's my story with Sahar and that's how I want to finish on him. There you go. Yeah, tremendous loss for the uh, effort to get to the bottom yeah, of the Orange Appendix. Just a tremendous loss. Are you guys going to be okay in future expeditions? I mean, you have, uh, you know, relatively quality guys to take his place in a sense? I mean, obviously he's irreplaceable yeah. in, a, in, a, in a massive way. Yeah, but you know I what I mean. What you mean. Yeah, of course, there are other guides out there who I've worked with very well. I mean, Dali's still out there. He's, he, he obviously speaks English. His son, Raffles, is, is trained as a tracker, and if I do, I'll go out there. I'll make damn sure I take Raffles. And um, Donny um, is an, an, a Donny and John, Sahar's brother, um, they're all really good trackers. So, yeah, we could... While Sahar is irreplaceable, there are, there are other good trackers who I, you know, who I could use, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Maybe Sahar can give the Orang Pendek a little push from the other side and help us out. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, you know, if I do end up going um, soon, then I'm sure he'll be uh, watching over it. I hope you're enjoying this commercial break. You're amazing. They're amazing? You don't even know who you're talking to, Poppy. You talk to them as if they're actual, if you know, as if you could see them. Uh, yeah, they're they're watching us. <laughs> yeah, but you're not watching them. Well, yeah, I can see no, them. No, you're not watching them. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I hope you're enjoying this commercial break. Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. Now, there's another person down there in Sumatra that we talked about originally way back uh, in our first conversation when we sort of were it was sort of like my feeling out of the Sumatran story, and this is uh, mm. Debbie Martyr. And I've, her name's come up again and again in recent times uh, when I was talking to Lauren Coleman. He was talking about her, and I, I sort of mm. recalled her story. Yeah, I, want I to heard hear Lauren's more about interview this. with you. It was a good one, yeah. Oh, thanks, thanks. So I guess talk a little bit about, about Debbie Martyr, her story, and how she, she fits into, like, this Orang Pendek mythos. Because I'm fast. She's still down there in Sumatra, right? She moved there. Yeah, t- Debbie, Debbie now does um, conservation work with the Tiger team. Um, uh, she's a remarkable woman. Um, she's lived there for... I don't know. I'm just guessing now. I don't know for sure, but what, 15 years maybe? Oh, wow. That's a rough guess. I don't know exactly. But Debbie um, has seen the Orang Pendek, I think, on several occasions, a couple of occasions at least. Um, And, you know, uh, whereas I've I've done 
um, a lot of Orang Pendek research. Debbie spent five years just on the Orang Pendek project alone. And it's because of Debbie that um, a lot of this interest initially started. I mean, I, I didn't, I met Debbie the second time I went out. So I'd heard about the Orang Pendek and I went, I met Debbie the second time I went out. And it was her guides as part of the Tiger team I originally used. And that was how I met Sahar and um, and move things forward that way. So, yeah, she's an incredible woman, a very tough, very tough lady. Um, and um, I have nothing but respect for her and her work. Nice, nice. And she's she's on board, I guess you could say, then, with, with what you guys are doing, right? She's not like... Yeah, yeah, you know. she knows about what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she helped me. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it's because of, it was because of Debbie's resources um, in, in 2001 that we managed to get the print, which you've seen. So, yeah, definitely. I wouldn't have made any of this progress to the same degree, I think, without Debbie's assistance initially, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Nice, nice. Did, has she expressed any interest on going out on these expeditions at all, or is she sort of just all set with what she's doing now? Well, she's very involved with I mean, she's obviously got a, a passionate interest in the Orang Pendek still. You would, after all that time, researching it. Um, but I, I think, you know, her focus right now is, is tiger conservation, and quite right, too, because there's only a few hundred of these remarkable creatures left. So she's spending a lot of her resources um, preserving those, and and um, and I completely understand that. You know, it's a tough place to be, um, but the clock's ticking, and, and, you know, what Debbie's doing is doing a lot of good. So I understand that her focus is on the tigers. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I think that's the right place for her to be because if she can pre help preserve their habitat, um, by default she helps preserve the Orang Pendex as well. That's true, yeah. Sort of, uh, yeah, envelops them as well. Yeah, you're right. And and sort of sets the standard for what might need to be done if it's a different part of the island where the Orang Pendex is or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. She does, I mean, she does a great job. And, and, and you know, um, <coughs> the, her and Jeremy Holden, who, who also spent, I think, 10 years out there, um, work very, work tirelessly to, to discover, uh, to, to, to help the jungle be preserved, be to interact with the authorities, and see to, 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 you know, to preserve those, those, those unknown species and, and those species that, um, need preserving. And, um, you know, they, they, they are <clears throat> true pioneers in every sense of the word. Now you've teased us a little bit about what you might be doing, uh, in the new year and stuff. So, so what, as we sort of established at the beginning of the conversation, January sort of starts the new year, obviously, and sort of like is a blank slate for you. So what are you, what are you looking at for 2012? What's sort of, uh, you know, in, in, in the mind of Adam Davies? Three things right now. Um, a possible return to Sumatra, and I say possible um, because it, it's in the hands of others right now. The, 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 it, not me for the first time. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the, the second thing, um, there are two things that I'm definitely going to do within the next 18 months, and I say absolutely definitely. Um, I'm going to do a return to Seljord ah. in Norway. Um, I'm going to go there probably in September, providing we've got I've got the boats for it. I need to make sure I've got the right equipment. And I'm meeting Andy and I are meeting up to discuss that in the next couple of weeks, and we'll put together a team for that. I'll have a dive team as well, I think this time. Oh, nice. So that that, that that's um, that's highly likely right now, um, but not definite. It just depends on the logistics, because as you as you've just said, it's early days. It's January, but I want to try and get that get that as a possibility leveled off within the next four to eight weeks and no matter what within the next 18 months I'm definitely coming to the US definitely definitely to do a Sasquatch um, trek 
All right, all right. You said that last year, so I'm, I'm still no, waiting I'm for your arrival. Coming. No, I said that last year, and that's it. But I'm definitely <laughs> coming. It, it, it is, it is, it is pulling me now, and I need to do it. And, and the difference between this year and last year, I mean, I got diverted by the around Pendak because uh, because I was going to come last year, but I got so many good sightings and the concentration of sightings, as you, as you said, I had to go back there. So that was my plan, but. Um, I, I'm definitely coming because I want to do it more than that. And I've started to make contact with some of the um, some of the big footers across across the U.S. and Canada um, to, to pick up some ideas. So, I mean, you know, when I do come, it'll just be an initial visit. Yeah. As I say, you refine you refine your searches, and I don't know an awful lot about the subject yet. I'm a complete novice on on Sasquatch, um, but um, I will definitely go somewhere. Um, within the next 18 months, I promise you. Right, right, because the U.S. is a whole different animal, uh, literally and figuratively, and there there could be up to three or four different types of, you know, uh, bipedal primates running around here on this country. Yeah, it's a very, very complex, um, or seems to be a very, very complex situation, and I haven't haven't remotely got to grips with it yet. Um, but, but, you know, um, I do know Cliff Barrickman, um, so uh, that's good, and I, I know a, num- a number of the other people. You know, I've been made contact with people like Daniel Perez, Steve Coles, is a friend of mine on Facebook. There, there, there's a number of uh, Tyler Vance. There's a number of people um, who, who you know, I could list them of about twenty or so names. But now I'm in contact with them. I can pick their brains. Uh, you know, um, and people have been very kind and offered to help. So. I'll be coming. <laughs> nice, 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 nice. Uh, just to jump back a little bit, Selyord, that's the Selyord serpent you'll be trying to get to the bottom of, right? Because I know some, as we yeah. said, bring people up to speed on this stuff, the Selyord serpent. Yeah, that was one of your first serpent. trips, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, and it's the only cryptid I've ever seen. So I actually saw it. So because of that, it holds a, it holds a personal fascination. Um, together with Andy, I saw it, as you know. Um, the, the stories on, on the cellular serpent go back. I mean, I think, I think one of the earlier ones were around the 1750s. Um, uh, again, and you can see, um, it, it, you know, again, it, so that you've got a, a legacy built up there, um, over hundreds of years about a, a mysterious creature. I mean, when I first went, as I, I said to you in those interviews where I did, I think four years back, I couldn't possibly see how it could exist. And if I, ironically, if I'd, um, if I know what I know now, having spent so many years studying cryptids all over the world, I probably wouldn't have gone because I couldn't see how a creature could survive um, in a lake that was um, frozen all winter. Yeah, it just yeah. didn't seem to make sense. And I've been to Loch Ness, and I don't believe Loch Ness monster exists, so um, I would never have gone. But I'm I'm very glad I did because um, obviously I saw it, and, and it looks. And one of the most remarkable things with the with the cellular serpent is it looks very much like the 18th century woodcut. So in other words, a serpent like with what and what specifically um, fascinated me was it, it appeared to have what looked like barbs on its spine. It was a re- remarkable, you know, uh, uh, you know. And I, and I could make bold claims that, that I've been to places that hardly anyone seen has ever been before. If I wanted to book BS and say, oh yeah, I saw the Makili Mambembo when I was in the Congo. I could do, and who's going to doubt me? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no exactly. one's going to know. Uh, but, so, but I didn't see it. So I want people to say, you know, if I say I've seen something, that's because I've genuinely seen it. You could say, well, he may be mistaken, and I'm sure um, I, I could understand why people might say that, but um, I really did see this thing, and it was remarkable. Interesting, interesting, yeah. Is there a lot of research going on with that beyond, you, you know, your trip down there? Are there, like, people in the area who who are sort of, like, dedicating themselves to getting to the bottom of that? 
or is it sort of languishing? Because I feel like the Loch Ness thing's languishing. It's not really going anywhere. Although you say, you know, you don't really see much to it, but, um, you know, it's like it's not as hot as it used to be. I don't personally think there is much to it. I mean, not just because of the ecosystem, which can't support large creatures, but also because, you know, having been there and I, when, when I looked look to the hydrophone recordings, um, I couldn't, I couldn't actually make out, um, any unknown animal in them. I wish I was wrong, Tim. Yeah. I'd rather be, I'd rather be wrong than right, but I can only say what, what I found based on my own investigation, you know, and, and because integrity's, um, very extremely important to me, and, and so I don't believe it exists, no. But with, in, in Selyord, it was very easy using a hydrophone to pick up, um, pick up, I mean, it's an underwater listening device for those people who don't know. Um, it, it's very, it was very easy to pick up potential noises of the creature talking for want of a better word, you know? I could, I could, I could see the, I could hear the thing communicate, and obviously I saw it. Um, I didn't get that, those, those sort of results at Loch Ness. I wish I had, but I, I just didn't. Very creepy and eerie place, Loch Ness. An amazing place still to visit. I'd recommend it to people, but not in the vain hope that they'll get a monster. But, um, <laughs> Selyord is 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 um is a completely different situation. There's definitely something there, um, and I um I, I I you know if if I can get the equipment that I need, there's no point just turning up and sitting by a lake for two weeks. I don't see any merit in that. I want I want Gucci equipment. I want the equipment that I need to do the job. And if I can get that, then I'm going. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's you know. It's exciting in a sense, too, because uh, you don't see too much research into these sea creatures, as I was saying. You know, it just doesn't seem like, um, you know, they don't, they, don't, they don't generate the buzz that the land animals are doing right now. So it's exciting that you're going to go back and give this another shot. What are you trying to do with yeah. this? Sort of get, get picture evidence, better, better – so you say you're going to have a dive team. So what – you know, what's the well, ultimate gonna, goal? Because you can't really get DNA off of, off of one of these things. No, no, DNA. Yeah, you're, you're wasting time with that, I think. I'd like to, in an ideal world, I'd like to get a picture, um, an underwater picture, an overwater picture, so you have observational teams on the surface and underneath. Um, so, uh, so you have two prong there. I'd like to get a hydrophone if possible, um, again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I, that's what I'd be looking at. Uh, and it'd be great if we can if we can get that um, with a caveat that, and there's also stories about something appearing on land, so in in specific areas which I've sort of half heard about. So there's 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 a potential there as well. So we'll just see. I mean, as I say, right now it's, it's embryonic because, as you said, January, and, and my plans can change as you rightly picked me up on before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I have to be adaptable and, and go with the flow. So, you know, right now that that that's the strongest possibility. But if there's a concentrated sighting in, say, Bhutan um, next week, Tim, of an eight-bite creature, and somebody says, well, do you want to go, Adam? Then I'll be on the plane, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, when we had Lauren on, uh, he correctly sort of uh, prognosticated that, that, you know, the Yeti thing was going to get big, and we did sort of see a big Yeti push with this finger mm-hmm. thing, even though it didn't really – I can't – I don't remember – I don't really know exactly how it all shook out, the Yeti finger, but the, the Yeti – creature was sort of a hot thing as we closed the year. So you never know. You know, you might get a call from the BBC that's like, hey, you know, do you want to lead a Yeti expedition or something like that, right? Yeah, well, Bhutan's a good place. Well, the, the, the finger, as, as, as a lot of your listeners will know, turned out to be human. Just that's to, what I heard, yeah. Wrap, yeah, to wrap that up. But, but um, if I could go anywhere in the world to look for potential Yeti creature, Bhutan right now, I think, that, I think you know, instinctively, um, my research says to me that, that that's a good place. And so that's where I'd, I'd be, I'd be off to. 
And, and Lauren was right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there, that's a concentration. But I think, you know, his, Yeti and bipedal creatures have always, you're right about the lake monsters. And I think probably I need to do something different as well. And that's one of the reasons I was interested in, in, uh, in, in looking at Saryord again. But <clears throat> of all the, 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 the bipedal ones interest me most simply because they're, they're so close to us. And I, and I, I want to learn about their behavior and habitat. I think we could learn a lot about ourselves from studying them if we can prove that one exists. So, or hopefully, but it would, it would be a remarkable discovery. Um, so that's why they've always fascinated me, um, in terms of cryptozoology more than, than the others. But, but I am also interested in lake creatures too. I think some of them are fascinating. Now, what what you said that we could learn a lot about ourselves. What do you mean by that? Well, um, I personally am an evolutionist. I respect other people's opinion. I'm not a creationist, um, and I never have been. And I, I think the idea of something walking bipedally um, is 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 remarkable because it it, it it almost gives us a semblance of our past. Yeah. yeah. So. You can see how we have developed. If you look at, say, for example, a, a tool use, of, uh, I mentioned earlier, of a chimpanzee and how that's developed and how um, we expanded from hunter-gatherers communities and, and fanned out, I think that these sort of things will, will give us a massive cultural awakening, if, if, if for once for a better word, if, if one of them is proved. That's a personal opinion. It's, it's not, and that's, that's philosophy rather than science, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But still uh, of, of, of interest and critical importance. Now, have you ever, now not necessarily with regards to the Orang Pendak, but, you know, there's this sort of, uh, and I'm not sure if we've talked about this before in the program, but, uh, you know, there's this concurrent sort of um, sub- text, I guess you could say, or sub-discussion in the world of cryptozoology that maybe some of these creatures are like paranormal in, in nature. Have you ever, yeah, I'm sure you've heard yeah, that. Yeah, I've heard of, about this. I mean, the know, idea of, 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 of shape-shifting things, yeah, and, and move, things moving interdimensionally between things. Hmm. I, 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 I understand that. I, I, um, for example, I know Nick Redfern's propounded a few ideas about that, and I got on very well with Nick. He's a great guy. But I think, you know, I think it's totally cool to say that um, um, uh, we we have a difference of opinion on this, and, and, and that that's the right approach in the sense that I don't believe that they're interdimensional beings. What I am after is hard. I believe, for example, let's talk about the orang pendek. I believe it's a real living animal that if we push enough, and I think I've done, you know, as I said to you with the scientific papers, there's, there's real scientific evidence there for it, but I think if we push enough, we can get genuine scientific evidence. I have never seen any scientific evidence of the existence of a, an interdimensional being, as far as I'm aware. There's been no ever recorded documentation of anything of that nature. I'm after with the greatest of respect to Nick, who who I think is a wonderful guy, and, and I can't say enough good things about, I disagree, I'm after real scientific evidence. Right, right, right. And I, well, I was having a conversation with Greg Bishop a few days ago uh, for like a year in review thing, and they're not mutually exclusive, these two concepts. There could be, there could be some interdimensional bipedal primate, but there could also be a myriad of, of natural animals as well. We can't get trapped into the either-or argument, right? Yeah, there the, 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 the could be, but um, I have—I mean, and, and, I, and I, I've, I've listened to your show where Greg and, and Nick have talked about these concepts before, so I'm aware of, of Greg's opinion too. Um, but I, 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 
I struggle with the concept of anything um, be anything being interdimensional because I've not seen any proof of it of it happening elsewhere yeah. that I could I could I could verify. That's not to preclude the fact that you know it, that there may be interdimensional creatures, but um, I'd, I'd want to see some evidence of their existence. So I'm not I'm not dismissing the idea, Tim, yeah. uh, uh, as a concept. I'm just saying it's not what I'm focused on, and I don't know enough about it. I'm just after real evidence of real creatures. There you go. It's in your grey basket. It's an old standard. <laughs> yeah, expression. absolutely. It's in my grey basket. Uh, it's, I'm not dismissing it because I just don't know enough about it. And, and you know, and I'm interested enough to listen to people express those views. I, I, I just, I just. I just, it's just not something that I've ever delved into. Okay. Now, you said the BBC was with you guys on the trip. What was the, you know, what was the extensiveness of their involvement? Were we going to see a TV special out of this or anything cool like that? Yeah, well, I, th- I think the BBC are, are doing an amalgam of a couple of things. Um, and um, I think they'll be, because um, th- th- they came to India with us as well. Um, so they'll, I think they're doing a conglomerate general documentary. I don't know enough about it really. I haven't been in touch with the guy who's the producer for a, a, a couple of months because obviously Christmas came along, we had the Sahara thing and I've been delving into my other projects, not least getting so a lot of my spare time has been getting the samples sorted for the, for the scientists that I've just been talking about and obviously yeah. going to see Brian in Oxford and a couple of other things. So I need to get in touch with them and find out, but I don't I don't know exactly when it'll be on yet or anything else. <laughs> That's probably the most vacuous answer I can give you. It um, sounds like it not could my be folks. It sounds like it could be something pretty... So they went to India with you and filmed, then they went to Sumatra and filmed, but none of this stuff has shown up yet? No, none of this stuff has shown up yet. If I had to, if I had to guess, um, maybe it'll be in March or April, but that's just a guess. I haven't actually spoken to them about it, so I guess we'll see. Yeah, because this could be something really uh, awesome. This could be something really big if, if, you know, if they put together some kind of special piece in all this stuff together. I mean, you know, that could really help your stuff in a big way, you know, get some funding. Yeah, well, the guy who wrote it, Morgan, he's, um, I mean, he's, Morgan, the guy who came out filming, um, he, he's a, he's, I think he's one, he's an award-winning documentary maker, so, and, and I think he's looking at a special, um, the idea, I think, behind it was a 90-minute special. Not just of, of those two, uh, those two things, but I think he's doing some other stuff with the CFSR, but as to how, what shape that'll take, you know, when I was on expedition, I was focused on the expedition, and I, and I kind of wanted the cameras to be in the background. It right, wasn't right. about being for me. It wasn't. I love doing TV stuff, but you know, on the expedition, it wasn't about being on telly or on the TV. It was about getting the best possible results I could on the expedition. So he wasn't my main focus. He sort of rung about in the background, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you're not like Steve Irwin out there, right? You're not like no, no, no. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> great to be on TV. I love it, and if. You know, I'm realistic enough to know that if I could do this thing full time, which, which, which I'd love to do, the, the easiest and best way to do it would be to do a series. So, God knows I'd want to do that, Tim, you know, absolutely. But when I'm out there, I'm out to get the best results I can, not just for me, but for the team and for the creature. And the TV is always secondary to me if it's my expedition. When I've done, you know, things like Monster Quest and the Himalayas and stuff, I've been working for them. So, you know, the TV has taken a bigger focus as it should do because they're paying for me to be out there. But nobody's paying for me to be out there. I'm I'm responsible for those people on my team when I'm doing it in Sumatra. So TV's secondary, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. makes perfect sense. Uh, let me see. I think we've kind of covered everything. So what's, 
we're waiting on just to sort of leave people hanging here on the cliffhanger of, of the Orang Pendek and where we're at here in January of 2012. So we're waiting on the new DNA evidence to come in. Yep, We've we're got waiting some... on it. And, you know, it, it, I mean, if, if something comes out, it will be fantastic. Absolutely. Um, but we, we, it, is, it, is a, it is a lengthy process, and, and, and so should it be. Um, it needs to be really nailed down. So, and I think, you know, <laughs> but, but again, I can't emphasize enough how pleased I am that, that, that now we're at the stage in our field where the leading experts um, possible in the world are now testing our research and testing it for free because they think it has some integrity and validity. And that's a long way from where we were um, when we first started. So that's great and very encouraging. Absolutely, yeah. Now, well, how, what was the reaction? Is is there like a pushback from from the zoological community at all to the Orang Pendek? You say it's sort of thawing, but has there been like a pushback? Because it seems like they should be embracing this like whole hog. Well, there'll always be people, you know, who say, well, it doesn't exist, or um, they're wrong, or it's a given, or, or uh, you know, it's an misidentification or something. Yeah. Like that. And that's okay. I'm cool with that. I mean, you know, the way you move opinions forward is by having people agree and disagree with you. I mean, I'm totally fine with that. I don't mind people disagreeing. I'm not there to 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 um to to, to I'm not. You can't be precious about it because scientific um scientific opinion and scientific views often change and often adapted or often done in the face of in the face of mainstream scientific opinion, not because of it. But then, you know, it's your job to move mainstream scientific opinion in the right direction as you see it, based on the evidence. And that's what I'm trying to do. So, yeah, people disagree, but I don't think people are, are, are openly hostile about it, nor should they be. I mean, you can have a different viewpoint to me, um, and, and we can debate it. For example, the, the, the debate I've just given between myself and Nick, which would be, if we were talking about things, we'd you know, we get on very well. Good, he's a good bloke, but we have differences of opinions. Yeah, exactly. In the same way, if you, as if if I was talking to say somebody who was sceptical, like like Ben Radford, <clears throat> you know, we may, we may have differences of opinions, but we, you know, we respect one another's work. And I think that I think what you have to do is have a constructive way forward and look to look to see how you can move move things forward for the benefit of of of, of, of science rather than rather than snipe at one another. I, I'm, I'm not into that, and I wouldn't work with anybody who was. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good. It sounds like it's not as as crazy as sort of like the skeptical community of some of these other uh, paranormal fields, even though, you know, the, the whole cryptozoology is quickly moving out of the paranormal and into sort of hmm. uh, this middle zone between the paranormal and the mainstream. I think, like, you know, the the proving of the Orang Pendek would, would go a long way to sort of pushing it even further into the mainstream. So that's yeah, the exciting part of all absolutely. this. Absolutely, I think it would. I mean, I mean, if you get if you get um, if you get something like DNA, if you get actual uh, you, you get actual science behind um, some of these cryptids, then it, it moves completely away from the paranormal. There are always these other things on the fringes of it, sure, because it's, it's a it's a big subject. But you, you know, it's always been very important to me that everything that I've done, um, I've tried to do with, you know, with, with integrity. So, you know, I don't mind, I, I could be wrong about stuff. Sure, I could, I hold my hands up, but um, I, I'd like, you know, I've done the best I can with the resources I've got um, uh, as somebody who does it in their spare time. And, and I think that's, that's all I can do, really, Tim. Right, right. Well, the exciting part, too, about, the, about your Orang Pendek research is that 
you know, this thing, this creature really, it, it was sort of on the fringes of the, of the cryptozoology community. I mean, it was well known by people who were in the field, but now it's, it's becoming, I wouldn't say like a household name, but in, in for people who follow the paranormal, they know what the Orang Pendek is now. And, and that really mm. wasn't the case, you know, when you first started this. So you've done an amazing job of like raising the awareness of this creature, like to a tremendous degree. Well, thank you, Tim. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I think it's it. And when I look at blogs and forums, because I've got on a lot of them, um, uh, one thing I'd say certainly about the Orang Pendek is a lot of people, even those people who have <coughs> a sceptical persuasion, which is fine, um, say, well, of, of all the cryptids, um, I think the Orang Pendek is the one that's most likely to exist. Right. So I think there's been a, I think there's been a paradigm shift, as you, as you rightly say. Um, I don't know whether it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's just down to me. I think it's probably down to, to, to Debbie, Debbie and Jeremy initially, but um, there's been a paradigm shift definitely um, with, with awareness uh, on the Orang Pendek, which is great because, you know, as I've said to you, time's running out. The, the, you know, those jungles won't last forever the way things are going. So the more the consciousness that we can raise about the existence of the Orang Pendek, it can only be a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And hopefully, uh, as I said, if not next year, in a few years, we'll be having the uh, the celebratory Adam Davies conversation. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a good old we'll have a good old few beers in Boston and chat about it. Yeah, just don't blow me off. If you end up, you know, becoming <laughs> famous, you know, don't be like, listen, I can't, I can't do Ben All of America oh, anymore. No. I'm going to be on Big <laughs> Brother that, now. Don't <laughs> do anything crazy like that. <laughs> no, Tim, I can guarantee you, um, no matter what happens in the future, if you'll have me, I'll always do the show because it's a blast. It is always fun and always full of laughs, dude. I really appreciate you uh, coming back here for the fourth year. This thing, as I said, has sort of grown into its own little uh, mini tradition, but I just love doing it love having these conversations. Now, aside from yeah, the too. expeditions, any sort of, um, you know, writing projects or, you know, a follow-up maybe to extreme expeditions or anything, you know, that maybe you might be working on sort of uh, beyond, as I said, the expedition aspect of, of your research? Yeah, well, Extreme Expeditions was was, was published in 2008, and since then I, I've been to, where have I been? Russia, Mongolia, again, China, um, the Himalayas, um, Sumatra several times. So, you know, I've been, I've been all over the place. So maybe after next year, I might well write a sequel to it. Um, but as I say, I've got, I've got three things in the pipeline this year. Yeah. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're getting very close to, um, to, uh, moving those forward. So once I've done those, once I've done one of those, then probably I'll write something next year. So, yeah, next year I'll write I'll write a sequel to that because I've got enough material I think to write it to make it worthwhile and substantive so people when they when they read it can say well it's five years what's you been doing in the last five years and they can see the difference because by then I'll probably have, have been out to about ten different countries so yeah yeah you've you've had an amazing career I mean it's just like just reading the first book it was like wow this guy's done some tremendous stuff and then as you said like in the last five years you've just kept it going in a huge way it's 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 remarkable you really put your money where your mouth is uh on this stuff we need more people who are out there actually doing the hard work to get to the bottom of these mysteries so kudos yeah to you. well i mean i think that's an important point and I, and I would encourage more field researchers i'm always happy to help people and share ideas with people um, who wants to go out and do these things. I don't think people should be intimidated by the fact that not everybody's going to want to go to the Congo and get shot at like me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I fully accept that I'm asking a lot of people to want to do that. But there's no reason why people can't do expeditions um, nearer their homes or, or in other parts of the world which are less dangerous. Uh, so 
um, you know, if people want ideas and help, then I'm, I'm always happy to help them um, if I can. Uh, and, you know, I, I always will because I think these things are important and I want to carry it on. Um, you know, <laughs> I think one um, one person who reviewed my book said um, said um, I hope Davis writes a sequel if he survives to live that long days, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. And I'm still alive, so uh, but you know I'm conscious of the fact that um, I have been a bit lucky on a couple of occasions. So uh, I want to carry it on. <laughs> if there's just me, there'll be nobody going to these places pretty soon. The way things are, so yeah, so yeah. If anybody needs any help and support then then please please let me know absolutely absolutely folks should look you up on facebook that's where you're posting a lot of your stuff now for extreme expeditions and uh as i said the book is from anomalous books extreme expeditions i highly recommend this one folks if you haven't read it by now it's been it's been out for a while and this is the fourth time we've had adam on to talk about his journeys and stuff so definitely folks go out and pick that one up Adam, I can't thank you enough. It's been another My pleasure. fantastic uh, annual visit from you, and I look forward to seeing where you go in 2012 and hopefully our paths cross in, in the uh, real world once you arrive in America because that would be awesome. Yeah, no, they definitely will. And if anything really significant happens, I'll give you a, I'll give you a bell, Tim, yeah? Absolutely. I would love to hear it. Thanks again, buddy. Best of luck in 2012. And you, Tim. Best of luck to you, too. That does it for the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to our good buddy Adam Davies for coming back on the show and for providing such invaluable first-hand insight into the quest for the Orang Pendek. Be sure to check out Adam's book, Extreme Expeditions from Anomalous Books. And if you want to find out more from Adam, punch in his name or Extreme Expeditions into Facebook and you'll be able to get updates from the man himself on his various adventures in the new year. As we've been saying year after year, my friends, keep an eye on Adam Davies because he is on the verge of a game-changer with this Orang Pendek research, and it just may take Esoterica to a whole new level in the future. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And this actually may be the last listener feedback of the season. I'm not sure. We may pop in some emails at the end of the season finale. I'm not quite sure yet. But for now, let's just dive into the mailbag because we've got two shorties and a long one that I want to feature here on this installment of the program. First one comes from Steve. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Loved the show with Greg Bishop. You had some good 9-11 comments. Try and check out this new movie about the OKC bombing. It's called A Noble Lie. Alex Jones has been pushing it lately. Thank you very much for writing in, Steve. Glad to hear you enjoyed the Year in Review episode. I will definitely look into A Noble Lie. Always interested in the OKC bombing. Definitely a story that has sort of slipped through the cracks of the parapolitical community. Totally overshadowed by 9-11. And I also want to note that Steve actually mailed a list of guest suggestions to the BOA PO box. So big thanks to Steve for sending that off to me, and I'll segue that into the call for guest suggestions. We've already got a ton of them because I've been asking for them since November, but since this is the penultimate edition and since we have the season finale guest lined up, now is the time when I start making my list for the next season of BOA Audio, and I've actually already begun that. I've got about seven or eight names on that list. 
Some of them are cold from BOA Audio listener guest suggestions. Some of them are just folks that I really want to talk to, but I definitely want to hear who the BOA Audio listeners want to hear from on the program. So send me your guest suggestions, and I will put them in the pile for future editions of BOA Audio. Next email comes from Rachel in Manhattan. Here's what she has to say. Hey, Tim. Happy New Year. I hope your year has started off better than mine. Are you planning on going to any events or fun festivals this year? I am looking for something fun to do. Rachel in Manhattan. Thank you very much for writing in, Rachel. First of all, of course, Happy New Year to you, Rachel. I hope your year has taken a turn for the better. Sounds like things were a little rough when you made this post. With regards to any events or fun festivals here in 2012, there is absolutely nothing on the drawing board right now. Um, you know, I'm kind of burned out on the festival event circuit, if you will, and I'm not even really that big a part of it. And without getting too deep into this or being too much of a tease, uh, there's a good chance that the next event or festival that I really throw my heart and soul into will be something revolving around BOA itself, some sort of BOA-sponsored or BOA-organized event, conference, or festival. But if that were to happen, it would be a long way off, something in 2013 at best. But that's kind of the way I've been feeling lately about these events. Final email is a long one, but I found it very interesting. It comes from Brian in Lexington, Kentucky, and here's what he has to say. While listening to the Season 6 finale with Greg Bishop, something struck me when you guys started talking about Annie Jacobson's book, Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base. It seems like there are many folks in the world of esoterica, and especially ufology, who want to discredit this book wholesale because of what I like to call the punchline of the book, which is the part that deals with Stalin and the Nazi scientists being the so-called truth behind the Roswell crash. I have to admit that I find that chapter pretty hard to swallow as well and share a lot of the skepticism on both the story and the source of this revelation. But for those who haven't read it, the book is mostly a fascinating read for anyone interested in the secret history of America's nuclear program and the technologies that led to the development of the U.S. military stealth aircraft. This non-UFO content makes up about 98% of the book. With the exception of said chapter on the Roswell incident, there's not a hint of sensationalism in the rest of the information she presents from her research. I find it ironic that so many people in the world of ufology are indifferent to this book, while on the other hand, so much focus and attention is directed towards the words and works of numerous colorful characters in the field, many of whom have dubious backgrounds involve themselves in petty controversies, and generally seem way out there in left field. When compared to Ms. Jacobson, who is an accomplished journalist, national security reporter, and contributing editor to the LA Times. To me, this indifference suggests a double standard in the world of ufology when it comes to the sources and the vehicles for information regarding government cover-ups and other UFO-related material, perhaps because the book was a national bestseller. At any rate, I'd love to hear you land Annie Jacobson as a guest on BOA sometime, just to hear her side of the story, and to delve into some of the more reputable parts of her research on Area 51. I think that would make for a great future episode. Thanks again for another great season, and thanks for all the hard work you and the BOA staff do each year. Signed, Brian, in Lexington, Kentucky. 
Thank you very much for writing in, Brian. First of all, just a slight clarification. Of course, the Greg Bishop Year in Review episode was not the Season 6 finale. The Season 6 season finale will be coming at you on the next edition of the program. Stay tuned for details on that in just a little bit. But that really wasn't the point of your email. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head here with the double standard in the world of ufology. First of all, UFO research is fraught with all kinds of psychological weirdness. I think that's the best way to put it, and that's tremendously vague. But the double standard is part of it. Lay people in the world of UFO research, a lot of them really just want to hear what will confirm what they believe. So when a book like Annie Jacobson's Area 51 tome comes out, and it says something that completely goes against their belief about Roswell, they immediately just shut down and dismiss the book out of hand. Personally, for me, I just did not have the time to pick up the book and read it. If I had Annie Jacobson on the show as a guest, of course I would sit down and read the book before we talked, but given my intensely grueling schedule, I don't have time for any pleasurable reading or any reading that doesn't have anything to do with BOA audio, so... I have not had the chance to pick up the book and check it out. Sounds like it's a fantastic read, and I'd be happy to dig into it and would love to have Annie Jacobson on the show. But you did hit the nail on the head here with this double standard in the world of ufology. Additionally, I think there's also sort of this inferiority complex when it comes to UFO research, where the people who've been doing this for a long time, the people who've been researching UFOs for decades, they see somebody come along who is, as you said, an accomplished journalist and a writer for a mainstream newspaper, they write a book on a topic that is really a big part of UFO research nowadays, and that goes on and becomes a national bestseller. I think that sticks in the craw of a lot of UFO researchers, and I think it upsets a lot of people who are UFO enthusiasts, for lack of a better term. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just think that it's a psychological thing. They feel like, you know, someone came in and swooped in and picked up the stuff they've been talking about for so long, and now they're getting all the glory while the researchers here toil in the field of UFO research. I think there's part of that's going on as well. As I said, the world of UFO research is fraught with all kinds of psychological issues, and these kind of things may be why we haven't gotten to the bottom of the UFO phenomenon at the end of the day. I mean, there's just a lot going on with people who are interested in the UFO phenomenon, that goes far and beyond UFOs, lights in the sky, and ETs. But I think you hit the nail on the head here with the double standard as far as source material and additionally this whole outsider's perspective that a lot of people in the world of UFO research have. And to borrow a phrase from you here, at any rate, I would love to have Annie Jacobson on the show in the future to talk about that whole issue, talk about her research in Area 51, and talk about the controversy surrounding the Roswell aspect of her book. So I will definitely put her down on the potential guest list for Season 7. And thank you, Brian, for a very thoughtful and thought-provoking email. On that note, we will zip up the BOA Audio Listener Feedback Mailbag for this edition of the program. Big thanks to Brian Rachel and Steve for writing in here on the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 6. 
Just because we're wrapping up the season on the next installment of the program does not mean that I don't want to hear from you. As a matter of fact, I want to hear from you almost more than ever because now's the time for guest suggestions. Now's the time for your thoughts on Season 6 as a whole. What guests did you love? What guests did you hate? What programs made you think? What programs bored you to tears? I want to know all that stuff. Give me your feedback now as we close the book on Season 6 so I have a better idea of what the BOA Audio listeners want as we get ready to begin production on Season 7. So how do you get in touch with me? That's simple. There are three main ways to do it. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. And the third method is, of course, to head on over to the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. Lots of discussion there on Banal of America, BOA audio, pop culture, and the paranormal. Head on over, it's free, register, and join in on the fun at the US of E. And, of course, I would be remiss without mentioning that I'm a part of Facebook and Twitter, so punch in Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and you'll find me on there. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as a part of my online circle of friends. Up next, please allow me to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolan, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Lots of good stuff at BOA. Leslie kicks off 2012 with a look at the weird case of the ufologist who was murdered at the turn of the new year. Regan Lee looks at 14 bird happenings, which also happen at the start of the year. And Richard Thomas has a new text interview with Mac Maloney, author of the book UFOs in Wartime and previous BOA audio guests. So lots of cool stuff at BOA. And we are working on a major upgrade at Banal of America. I can't say too much more about it, but it is definitely in the works right now. We're hoping to sort of have it all come together when we launch Season 7. So stay tuned to Banal of America I know things have been sort of in the doldrums during Season 6 at the website, but 2012 is going to be a huge year for BOA, and you're going to see it coming together in the not-too-distant future. So, as always, stay tuned to Banal of America to placate your esoteric news and opinion needs. Now comes the time in the program where we turn to you, the BOA audio listeners, and ask you to help us out by throwing a little fuel in the tank of the BOA mothership. I'm going to be pushing the donations pretty hard on the season finale, so we'll keep this one short and sweet. How can you help us out? That's simple. There are two ways to donate to BOA. You can head on over to the website, banalofamerica.com, and click the PayPal button. That'll bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It is safe and secure. If you don't trust the internet and you want to donate via snail mail, you can send your donations to the BOA P.O. Box, and the address for that is Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. 
And if you send us a donation to the P.O. Box, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America, and include some kind of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for your donation to the BOA franchise. We say it at the end of the program every time we call for donations, but it bears repeating. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the audio series and the website up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next time on BOA Audio, this is it, my friends. It is the season finale of BOA Audio Season 6. I can't tell you too much right now. I've got two major names lined up for the season finale. It's going to feature two guests, folks. Not at the same time, but it's going to feature a lengthy interview with one big-name guest and a shorter interview with another big-name guest as well. Two huge names in keeping with the BOA Audio season finale tradition, and we're hoping to get the episode out to you either the Saturday before the Super Bowl or on Super Bowl Sunday. So stay tuned to Banal of America for details on that. It has been a long season. It has been a massive season, and it's going to come to a tremendous crescendo with the BOA Audio Season 6 finale. I wish I could tell you more right now, but I don't want to ruin the surprises, and I don't want to jinx myself before these interviews are in the can. But as I said... Two major, major names in the world of Esoterica will be joining us to close the book on Season 6 of BOA Audio. Stay tuned. It's been a hell of a season, and we're going to go out with a massive bang. And on that note, I'm practically losing my voice here because I feel like I've talked just a ton here at the end of the program this week, so let's just wrap it all up. Big, big thanks once again to Adam Davies. Thanks to our buddy Pete Diggins for providing the theme music to this installment of the program. Check out his website, www.orophonic.com, A-U-R-O-P-H-O-N-I-C.com. Thanks to Steve, Rachel, and Brian for writing in on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And, of course, big, big, super huge thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners who stick around through all my rambling at the end of the program You guys are the best. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.